I'm Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, and I'm sat here again this morning, and we're sat with Ollie Francis. Oh. Yeah. Right, tell me something, Ollie. How did we meet? Oh, we met at the Sheffield Novel Slam. Was it about a week and a half ago now? Great evening. I've never encountered anything quite like it, actually. I know that it's been running for a number of years. It's an evening where novelists from the city get together and read excerpts from their novel and the audience gets to vote on on who they enjoyed most and, and people kind of go forwards and um, able to get some feedback from a, a number of different judges. And I mean, it was a, it was a great evening, great venue in uh, Dina in town. It's, uh, it was really good to hear so many different types of story yeah. all in one place. Last time I spoke about this was with Sarah Perchon and she said she thought it was something of an adrenaline rush. Mm. And uh, but for the first couple of rounds, anyway, after that, she said she felt she'd calmed down and got to grips with it. How did it affect you? It was inspirational, actually. It's a real opportunity to be able to hear from the mouths of writers. I think that people read their own work in a way that they wouldn't read anyone else's work. Nobody else could read your work in the way that you read your work. It comes right from your heart, and and to be able to hear that on stage was great particularly as i said before the the number of different styles of story the number of different ways that people presented their tales it's good to give you a sense of perspective of just how many people there are out there producing good work do you feel that the novel slam helped you to position yourself in that range of people do you do you feel that uh, it gave you the opportunity to improve or place yourself so far up the ladder or well, it made me conscious bottom. that the style of writing that I'm interested in is not necessarily the popular style of writing. There are so many different crime uh, novels and adventure novels and novels that were funny, and I can't do any of that. Where would, you cat- of that yeah, where would you categorize categories? I'll give the cat her teeth back later. <laughs> where would you categorize your work? I like stories that expose things that people don't want exposed. I like stories where you don't trust the people you hear, where they're hiding things. I'm interested in characters who are caught up in their own narcissism and they can't see the world outside us, outside themselves. Because I think that that is my fundamental understanding of human experience. We see our own little worlds We see our own stories and we forget that there are hundreds and thousands of other stories happening around us all the time. And it's that sense of focus down on your own little world, being blinkered to what is going on elsewhere. And then that moment of realisation where you see other people's concerns, other people have their lives, other people have their hopes and dreams. And that is the moment of the sublime for me. That's that's what I want in my stories that's what I want in my life I want to be able to see that that moment of somebody else's yeah. is, is there a part in your novel where you had that sort of uh, victory moment you know where you punch the end yeah I really nailed that chapter or that that paragraph this is what I wanted to say well hopefully no because I like to think that writing should tempt the reader so I want it to be on the tip of the tongue just out of reach all the time. I want it to feel like the reader is about to 
discover that intimacy is a, is about to see the bigger picture but you never actually let them see it not until not until the end at the earliest Hopefully, right do you, do you feel that you me. give do you, do you feel that you give a reader enough clues along the way to be able to make their own deductions or? i don't know um i i would hope so i would hope so because yeah. ultimately it's got to exist in their mind um you've just got to prompt them prompt their imagination and then that's right. uh, that's where it comes to life on the evening of the novel slam, where were you positioned? You said you were in the last two? I yes, I uh, think I got the second spot at the end. So I performed in the final round, first of all, then everyone else came came after me. And, and that was that was an eye-opener. So Dan, who, who won in the end, he gave his second reading of his work, uh, Yellow Jacket. And, I mean, it was an absolute clincher the moment that i heard him talking about the the killing of the yellow jackets curling them up into the ball i i knew that 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 was the story that deserved to win that time um so i was i was really happy with how i read because i did have a slight panic i only realized that there was three rounds when i was told that i had to go up and read the third round and it just so happened that i had part of my novel still with me um there's in addition to everything that I'd, I'd read out before. So it was sheer luck that I was actually able to read anything at all. And I like sharing my work with people when it's when it's done. Uh, it's never quite done. But that moment that I heard, that I heard Dan's, it was, yeah, that's that's the one that deserves that's to That's the one. Yeah. How did you feel about the judging process? Did you, did you feel that it was fair or informed? Oh, there wasn't enough of it. I wanted more. You wanted more. I wanted right. more. There were four judges there on the evening. And... We had time to get a quick bit of feedback from two of the judges. Yeah. And that was what I really wanted. When you expose your work, you yes, you're looking for affirmation. But I mean, people are going to affirm you anyway. People are always going to say, oh, well done. That's a really nice reading because people are nice. Fundamentally, they want to um, give you some confidence. But to be able to hear the feedback from the judges, that was what I was really after that evening. So I stayed I stayed behind at the end. I think I stopped people from leaving almost at the end because I was desperate to hear from all of the judges and get their ideas over what I should be doing. So I've been talking to loads of people. Everyone that I spoke to on the evening, I think I've, I've all got through about half of them. I've been sending them bits of work, asking for them to kind of um, give me back ideas because you don't really see your work till you see it through somebody else's eyes. True. Having heard you, I, I can't fault your level of commitment and passion to, to writing. That's right. I did that do for you, me. That's right. Yeah, but where does the passion come from? Do you, do you know? Is there, is there something that drives you? Legacy, creation. You see, it's, it's so easy to get lost in the day-to-day drudgery of your normal day job the way that you earn money and I just don't want to get to the end of my life and think if only I had and one of the things that I want is to be able to leave something behind that's more than just other people's pictures to leave something behind that people can see a little bit of my soul and that's why I like writing because I feel like there's one part of me that will survive me. When you read uh, Fitzgerald, when you read these great writers of the past, you feel like there's a part of you connecting to them. It's not just the characters. It's like the characters are a, a medium through which you can connect to somebody else. And 
there's an intimacy with that. I, I, I'd like someone to be able to read my work who I don't know and to, for them to feel like they've seen a glimpse of who I was. Immortality. Basically. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just yeah, a small thing. It's, it's you know, a, bit like having, a bit like having children. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did used to think that having children was your path to immortality. Yeah. Um, this is why children were so important to families. It was the way that you lived on after your death. Yeah. What's, what's that uh, thing of Byron's? Is it, um, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. And that's carved upon a ruin in the middle of a desert. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so yeah, we all we would all like to be immortal, and we'd all like our own slice of immortality. Hey, now you've brought a few things to read today. I notice your first story is Sandcastle. Would you like to tell me something about Sandcastle? Why you wrote it? What your inspiration was? I don't just mean your inspiration, but sometimes it it happens even in the shower or on a bus or in the car. There's this tiny little spark that ignites. And then just burns slowly for a couple of days, and then you get the flame of the story. So, where did this one come from? Well, I wrote this one on the beach. Uh, it Ain't all came life. in one go. My kids were playing on a bouncy castle, one of these things that you just hope won't blow away in one of these disastrous things that you hear about in the news. But I was sat there watching them, and I just started writing. Um, and this is what came out. I, I often think that a story is, it's already there. And when you write, you take away the stuff that's not there. So that normally involves you shutting yourself away from the world a little bit, or at least stopping doing whatever it was that you were doing before, and just letting that story kind of speak through. And this was one of those moments for me. So I sat there thinking about fatherhood um thinking about my kids and this is the story that came out sandcastle i remember brushing sand from between your toes with a garish green checked towel using the same swoop and pull i had perfected flossing your teeth and there was always more to find hidden among the digits you would run beg for the bouncy castle count coins for the two p machines fabricate tactics so the next petty would send coppers tumbling down jackpot let's dig a hole daddy good idea how deep all the way to china he said i never thought the plastic spades would get us far but we worked hard digging down down into the damp sand Deeper and deeper we delved until we grew brave, extending sideways, carving out hollows, caverns, whole rooms, antechambers, great hallways with arched ceilings. We installed an elaborate network of polished shells to reflect the light in a mockery of stained glass, pumping the glow of summer from chamber to chamber, illuminating our kingdom like candles in the dark, like prayers in the night. Daddy, can we live here? Forever if we want, I told you. Or until it's time for home. We bought ice cream from the beachfront, sat huddled together by the open entrance as they melted. Our teeth crunched sand for hours. Pilgrims came from as far as the donkey rides to gaze in wonder at our creation. Your mother teased us that we should charge 
admission, give guided tours of the establishment by torchlight. Roll up, roll up, come see the seventh wonder west of the pier. You giggled at her, but I knew you loved her. We could sell tickets, you said later, testing the waters. Like they do on the dodgems. I think we'll keep it just for us, I said. I hated to crush your dreams, but I thought I knew your limits. Dig another room, I said. You nodded, went on ahead, and I lost you in the twisting corridors. I think in our hearts we'd known it would never last. But after the terrors of the waiting room and the horrors by your bedside, we were willing to suspend that disbelief and embrace our moment as kings of the cave and masters of sculpture. We had never stopped to consider the finer points of structural integrity and material longevity. In the dry summer air, unnoticed, our foundations granulated. Fleur-de-lis dropped their leaves like dust, and green men softened into formless faces. There was no cry, no muffled shout, no stifled acceptance of fate, just the hissing of sand and the slow tumbling down of walls. Your mother and I scraped until our fingers bled and the sand turned red. The spades were buried in the depths, so we borrowed from passers-by. Strangers lent a friendly hand, went for help, offered words of support until we found you. Sand stuck between your toes, your lips, your lashes. Give them room, they said. We had rooms, I said. So many rooms. Right, thank you for that, Ollie. You did mention that you were juggling writing between having... Oh, looking after children and being married and and also having a job what kind of a job do you do i am a teacher i teach english at a school in sheffield and i went part-time a few years ago which has been a really interesting experience actually i, I went part-time because i wanted to spend more time writing it's bizarre being a man and being part-time is a fairly unusual combination. I only know a couple of other people who have done the same thing, and it's, it's strange how it plays with your identity. So I often have to be talked to by my wife because I have these strange ideas of going back to work full-time, of going and progressing in my career, of ascending the hierarchies, climbing the ladder, and she has to stop me every time and remind me of why I went part-time in the first place. Because I don't want to get to the end of my career and have a title, have a position. I want to get to the end of my life and have a body of work to leave behind. And so she keeps on reminding me. But the pressure, and I think I, I, think I can say as a man that the pressure to kind of be part-time, people expect you to be full-time. Still, even in this day and age, people... St- still find it unusual that um, a guy can be part-time in this way and it's a completely different life. I haven't worked more than 50 hours a week in I don't know like six or seven years now and it's enabled me to do so much more, it's enabled me to be happier, it's enabled me to have a a more fulfilling life and I think part-time is the way forward. We don't need to block out every single hour trying to make money for someone else or trying to increase our bank balance because we can't take any of that stuff with us. 
Do you find that actually being in the teaching profession is, is to an extent, slightly privileged when it comes to doing job shares or uh, part-time? I mean, if let's take a silly for instance. Uh, if the plumber came to fit your bathroom suite and did 15 hours on it and then walked away and left you with all the pipes out and no water on and said, I'm coming back next week, you would uh, have a problem with that. It's a choice every day. It's not easy. Mm. It's not the easy choice because of the expectations put upon you. you. You just sense it, you feel it. In every conversation, it comes out. And to choose to be part-time is a difficult thing to do. And I don't think it has anything to do with my profession. I think it would be just as difficult anywhere. It's also difficult to compare what you do with other people. I often have this thing that everyone will experience stress in their job. So from what I understand, everyone has stress. Everyone finds things difficult. And life is a tricky series of choices. Talking about stress, when you were writing your novel, were there parts of it where you had to really dig deep to find the uh, the will to continue on, continue a narrative or work your way out or through a plot? Or, or did it just flow, which um, occasionally it does, I know. Yeah, it's, it was only really difficult from the beginning to the end. <laughs> the whole of it is a tricky process. I spent a year planning and working out the plot lines. My novel, Future Day, it involves an element of time travel, I guess you could say. It's messages sent back from the future. And so I did have to spend a month or so working out how to create time travel, which was a challenge. But then weaving the different plot lines into each other, looking for both opportunity and also difficulties in the cohesion of it, it was a real struggle. It wasn't something that flowed out. It's something that's taken a lot of investment. It's got a lot of my soul in there. Good, good. Having heard some of it, yeah, I, I will agree with that. I, I found it quite sensual, quite exotic, really, and the writing, it was, uh, it was good. Now, you brought us a narrative poem. Yes, this is a, a narrative poem from a, a collection of stories. I am... Um, this is actually some of my first writing. I wrote this for my wife. This was a wedding gift. When we were courting, there were there was a, a period of time where we were living on other sides of the country. Um, and we would speak to each other for hours every night on the phone. And I would tell her stories. And one of these stories was The Cloud Girl. And it's a story treading the line between children's narrative and nostalgia. It's meant for adults, but it takes the form of innocence. I was just coming out of a, um, a period of time when I've been reading a lot of um, Blake and Songs of Innocence and Experience, something that I've just started getting back into again. I've got to teach it this year. And it was that that clash of experience and innocence that I just found so appealing. And when we married, I wrote down not only The Cloud Girl, but also nine other stories that all interweave. And each one is 
very different different characters but a different way of writing so some of them are straight prose some of them are very strict form poetry some of them are more free form and they all kind of weave together telling a story moving from innocence to experience and this is the fifth one of the collection um, so it's right in the heart of all of them and the collection is called again it's called the cloud girl and other stories and this one is called the death of jimmy rembrick not yet not yet poor jimmy did cry for the doctors worked hard though they knew he would die they pumped him with drugs from a drip by his bed though they knew that by morning our jimmy would be dead still not yet not yet poor old jimmy did cry not yet not yet poor jimmy did cry and the doctors worked hard though they knew he would die his breath became sour and his face became white but brave jimmy refused to give up the fight and not yet not yet poor old jimmy did cry not yet not yet poor jimmy did cry so the doctors worked hard though they knew he would die he'd become deathly thin like a ghost anorexic and his liver gave up and his blood became toxic still not yet not yet poor old jimmy did cry not yet, not yet, poor Jimmy did cry, while the doctors worked hard, though they knew he would die. He began to cough hard from the depths of his core, and the blood from his lungs dripped down onto the floor, but not yet, not yet, poor old Jimmy did cry. Not yet, not yet, poor Jimmy did cry, still the doctors worked hard, though they knew he would die. He convulsed in his bed, in his own sweat and muck, poor Jimmy, it seemed, was clean out of luck. Still not yet, not yet, poor old Jimmy exhaled. Not yet, not yet, they heard him cry out, his voice was so low it still seemed like a shout the doctors stepped back unsure what to do though they tried all they could to help jimmy through but not yet not yet would poor jimmy let go not yet not yet they could see in his eyes his strong voice had faded and they knew he'd soon die they made jimmy comfortable for the time he had left what else could they do with their hopes so bereft still not yet not yet they saw in his eyes not yet not yet his soul seemed to cry as he lay there determined sustained by his pride the nurses spoke softly to add to his peace while they waited for jimmy and death's sweet release but not yet not yet was it old jimmy's time a noise from the hallway disturbed jimmy's rest and hope grew still stronger from the depths of his chest the nurses outside began to protest and insisted that they were the ones who knew best no i won't wait till morning i've got to get through and in through the door came somebody new he sat by the bed and took his father's hand and spoke loud and clear so his dad would understand he said dad it's a boy and old Jimmy smiled, and they knew that the suffering had all been worthwhile. Well done, well done, said father to son, and with that Jimmy slept, and his time here was done. Right, thank you for that, Ollie. And your novel, just to get back to your novel, at what point would you consider it to be complete? When I can no longer work on it. I'm not sure if it will ever be yeah, well, there's a danger in that. Uh, there's a danger in that because I have a friend who has a novel that he's continually tinkering with and never considers it to be complete. I, I don't know if you know Malcolm Lowry, who wrote Under the Volcano. No. He 
he wrote under the volcano i think it was a total of nine times uh, at one point around about the fourth or fifth incarnation the whole manuscript went up in a log cabin fire and he wrote it again and he kept sending it off to his agent and then taking it back and sending it back again and taking it back until his agent said after about the ninth uh, version said you're not having it back this is what's being uh, printed and published do you, do you feel that you would need external influence to begin to understand where your novel end and where it was complete no i know where it's got to be but until that time you can pry it from my cold dead fingers i've been thinking about this a lot recently i know that there are prolific writers out there who can churn out three or four a year and some of them just have the skill and can produce beautiful pieces of work time and time again but I know that I'm not going to be like that. And so each piece has to count. And there will come a time when I can let it go. There will be a time when I'm happy to share it. So the extracts that I read at the Novel Slam, the only reason that I was comfortable sharing those is because that part is done. That is ready. Granted, it's gone through six different versions but that was something that I felt I could share with the world. Um, but the story that I want to tell, it has to be right. It's got to be the right story. To do anything else would be lying. Right. Well, that, yeah, I can, I, I can identify with that. After your experience of, of writing this novel, are there any things that you would like to pass on to anyone who was in the same position that you were five or six years ago, who was looking towards finding more time to write for themselves or identifying the start of the process. Is there any advice you could pass back, like one of your uh, time travel messages back down the line, five, six years? I think the best advice that anyone hoping to write could get would be four words. Sit in the chair. You've just got to do it. You've just got to sit there and you've got to write and then you've got to stay sitting there and you've got to write some more. And you can't let yourself be distracted. You can't let the rest of the world creep in on that time. It has to be sacred. You've got to find what you love and let it kill you, as you know, Charles would say, um, and keep going. Well, I had five words taped to the top of my computer which was slightly different to to yours because that assumed that i was already sat in the chair i'm sorry i know i'm giving a bit of input here but it, I, I think it's valuable and on the top of my screen it said get out of the way which means remove the authorial voice stop dictating to your listener a reader and just let the story tell itself and the story tells itself far better than you can construct it if you just get yourself, your forebrain, out of the way and let your subconscious write the story. Does that apply to you? Do you, do you feel any sort of recognition of that? Oh, I completely agree. Um, because stories are about people, the way that we understand people is not through intellectual conversation, you don't love your wife because you've reasoned through it. 
you love them because there's something inside, there's a truth behind it all, there's a decision. And that is how I think we need to write. We need to write with the back brain. Um, and that's something that can only come with repetition and experience. It's like, it's like sport or music or painting. If you want to get better, you've got to do it and you've got to do it and you've got to do it again. And somebody might be a Premier League footballer, but that's because they've spent 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, however much it is, kicking that ball. They haven't researched into which muscle groups they need to use specifically to kick it. They haven't researched into the, the names of the tendons and the exact pounds per square inch that they need to apply at this angle of the ball. They just do it. They do it again and again and again. There's a part of our brain that understands things, that reasons, that tries to fit everything into neat little boxes. And there's the part of our brain that is true and does and is action. And that's where narrative comes from. That's where stories come from. Well, speaking of narrative, you brought along part of your novel that you read at the Novel Slam. I've got an extract from yeah, my novel. Yeah, an extract, yeah. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing that again. I actually thoroughly enjoyed it when I heard it on the, <laughs> on the Novel Slam. But can you tell me just a little bit of something about what your dreams are now. How, how would you like to see your progression from this point onwards? I'm still working on editing the story myself now. I would like to be able to get it into the hands of readers. Ideally, I need some support doing that. So I am going to be looking for editors who I'm going to employ myself and also um, eventually getting an, uh, an agent to look into print copies. I've got this bizarre fantasy at the minute of retaining the electronic rights because I think that there's a big future in self-publishing. I think the industry is going that way. I'm not sure if it's there yet. It's just on the tipping point. But the old models are rapidly changing and if I'm going to if I'm going to do this then I need to make sure that I'm I'm moving towards where I think the industry is going to be yeah I think I think uh, I agree with you to a certain extent and I looked at this some years ago and in fact there's some of my stuff out there too there's uh, firelight on dark water day for tigers the fox and the fish there are, are out on paperback and kindle mm. if, if you want I can help you to uh, get that into print that's, or onto Kindle that's not a problem and I don't know whether I was early or not but one of the things I've observed over a period is that it's marketing Absolutely. that is the problem the, the Bloomsbury's and the Penguin mm -hmm. and, and, and the others have a, a real corner on marketing and it's very very difficult for self-published authors to market their their work. You keep hearing of successes. You go to the book fairs, Amazon have somebody who sold umpty million on, on Amazon and they're a self-penned, self-published author. But they're one out of, you have a look how many books there Other are on Amazon, they're one out of, sort of two or three million. And, and there are people who have two reasons. One, they've been very, very lucky and they've been in the right place at the right time. 
And the other is that they are media savvy, which is three reasons, not two. My maths. Well, and data savvy as well. Yeah, you, you've and, got and to keep savvy, a record yeah. of everything. So whether you're using Facebook advertising, Amazon advertising, book blurbs, or any of the other different services out there, you've got to keep a track over yeah. where you're spending your money and where the money's coming from. Yeah. And I know that there are there are tricks. Like I know that after this novel, I need to get out some more because it's probably not until the third or fourth that, that you begin actually to start sell. making any money. Yeah. You, need that, you need that read through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you need that read through. Yeah. Um, and you need to make sure that you're advertising the, the right. So many people have sequences of stories. So one leads on to the other and that sort of read through with your audience. You focus your advertising on the initial book, on the hook. Yeah. that gets them interested in the big long story and everything but i mean there are lots of other ways that i'm looking into um connecting with other writers because if you've got a mailing list you're never going to be able to write enough books to satisfy your fans and so teaming up with other authors while you're between books let's say or you're still writing one you haven't got anything out at the moment um you help someone else out you direct your audience to someone who is of a similar style someone that they might enjoy and your writers are going to love you for that right okay so now i'd like to hear another section of that novel or the same section in fact that you read out on the novel slam which impressed me so much that i asked you to come down and have a conversation with me today start at the beginning you tell me i admit it's tempting. I could tell myself, this is the point it all began. Has a certain narrative appeal, doesn't it? Where would I begin, if I had to, if you forced me to? Maybe the first time you held me. You had the acetone smell of other people's houses on you. I remember I didn't like to breathe too deep in case I inhaled that part of you that wasn't with me, choking on the history of it. I clung on as you spoke comfort, wondering how you could ever cope with wearing that uniform all day. You wrapped your arms around me at last, and I felt you start to melt, and I just stood there, held by you. Maybe we stood there too long. I think we were both a little uncomfortable with all that future before us, and the days and nights emerging from that darkness. I suppose it's foolish to think we didn't know what was coming. You put your hands on my shoulders to push me back, but I didn't want to let go, and I buried myself deeper into you, my nose nestling into your neckline and my chin against the top of your breast. You're always a little bit taller than me, just the right height to hold. You pushed again, not hard, just enough to let me know it was time to go, but I know you didn't really want it to end. I know you'd only been concerned about something silly, like how you might have smelled at the end of a long day at work. I wouldn't have cared. I've been with men who have stank from start to finish. They probably thought it was their sexual prowess and not their stench that caused me to gasp and splutter. You wouldn't have been like that. Even closer to the end, when I bathed you every day with sponge and warm water, you barely needed it. The sores never made you stink, though you always worried they would. You complained about it as I cleaned them. I think maybe the idea of it got up your nose. Even if you hadn't been fresh, I wouldn't have minded if you had stayed. You could have showered if you were worried about being sweaty. You could have borrowed some clothes. We were about the same size at that time. Or maybe you wouldn't have needed any. Not until next morning, at any rate. 
Maybe we could have done something else to mark that as the start. Maybe then it would be easier for me to mark that as the beginning. But it wouldn't have been a good idea to push you. You can't force these things. And so we said our goodbyes and you left the house and that was it. For that day, at least. I like to think you had a spring in your step as you walked to your car. I remember waving from the window, stupid thoughts running through my head about how everything had changed and it felt like I suddenly had a future. Maybe it was the beginning, if there is such a thing, if you're going to insist on it. I should have asked you to stay. I should have never let you leave, all that time wasted. I can't help but wonder what could have happened. I'll admit I've been thinking about it more and more. I've worked out all the details. The touch of our lips, our fingers, and everything in between. I could just write that down and let that be our history. Who would know? <laughs> the future wouldn't be able to tell. They haven't got anything else to go on. They would just read what I had written and have to accept that as the truth. And so that would be the story of you and me. That would be our beginning. I know you'd tell me that wasn't the truth. You'd tell me, to be honest. But how's honesty going to help me? How's honesty going to change anything? Maybe we'd all be happier if we stopped being so damn honest. Fuck honesty. Life is just your word against mine. I hope you've enjoyed that conversation. I certainly yes, have. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and especially as committed and passionate writers as, as you are, Ollie. So thank you for coming down, Ollie, and, and thanks for all the readings. And, and this will be out on my podcast within the next two or three weeks. Okay, so thanks again. Thank you. Bye. And by the way, the title of Ollie Francis's new novel, which is as yet still incomplete, but getting there very quickly, is Future Debt. One to look out for. Keep your eye out for that novel of his in Waterstones and on Amazon. I have a feeling you won't have to wait too long. Well, that's all for this week's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio. And if you've hit that subscribe button, you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a... From Nelly. Goodbye. Goodbye.